Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City Employment and Civil Rights Law Firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Thank you for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. My name is Meyer Nassar, and I'm joined with Casey Wolnowski and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's podcast is about an area that is extremely, extremely vital to our rights within the workplace, specifically dealing with gender. And in this, we're going to be talking a little bit about Bostock, the recent case that came down within the Supreme Court that talks about your rights within the workplace as far as your sex goes, and more importantly, about LGBTQ rights within the workplace. Today, we're joined with a very, very featured guest, Ezra Sukor. Thank you so much for joining us. Ezra is a civil rights attorney and has done a lot of work within the LGBTQ community and advocating for their rights within the workplace. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me to discuss the Bostock decision. A lot has happened with respect to LGBTQ workplace rights in New York and around the country this year. And it's, I think, a really important decision to discuss. I hope you'll permit me to take us on a little detour (laughs) at some point also to talk about state and local law, but I'm happy to sort of jump right in and talk about federal protections because the reality is that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people face really alarming levels of discrimination at work, and we need absolutely every single tool we can get to be able to stand up and enforce our rights and put a stop to discrimination when it occurs, and then, of course, get some some redress. And I think as we have this conversation, I'm glad that you all surfaced the point of intersectional discrimination, because what we know is that at work, transgender people are alarmingly likely to experience discrimination. And then lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people of color are even more likely to experience workplace discrimination than white LGBTQ workers. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and NPR did a poll in, I think it was about 2017, people's experiences of discrimination in America. And one set of questions, they had a representative sample of LGBTQ people and LGBTQ people of color were more than twice as likely than white LGBTQ people who answered the survey to say that they'd experienced discrimination in applying for a job or in interacting with the police. So, and even in a state like New York, where we've had state and local protections for a long time, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people still experience pretty alarming rates of discrimination at work. So Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 says it's unlawful for employers to discriminate on the basis of sex. And almost as long as that statute has been around, courts have really grappled with what does this mean for gay people or transgender people or lesbians or bisexual people. And over the first few decades of the protections existing, when gay people would go to court to assert their rights, the courts would generally reject their claims. But then the tides started to turn. And especially after the Price Waterhouse decision, right, where a a cisgender woman sued after being denied partnership. And the court said, yeah, discriminating against someone for not living up to stereotypes about how women should be is a species of sex discrimination. After that decision, courts were a lot more able to see that the discrimination that transgender people face at work 
is a species of sex discrimination. It's part of sex stereotyping. And then as time went on, courts began to acknowledge, okay, we maybe don't even need stereotyping type evidence. It's just sex discrimination. And then the claims of gay and lesbian people began to be acknowledged. But the Supreme Court hadn't spoken on the issue, right? There are several mm -hmm. federal statutes that cover sex discrimination, and the Supreme Court hadn't addressed how any of them apply to gay or transgender people. And so that's what really makes the post-doc decision significant. The Supreme Court heard the issue and said, yes, protections against sex discrimination mean it's unlawful to fire someone for being gay or transgender. The reasoning of the decision was, I think, really simple, and it's going to be very impactful. So the court said, look, this is in line with our precedents, this is in line with the cases we've decided in the past. It's in line with the fact that Title VII is a broad command against discrimination, but it was really a decision based on the text of the statute. And the court illustrated why discrimination against someone for being gay or trans is sex discrimination using the example of two hypothetical employees. So the court asked us to picture two employees who are identical. They're both attracted to men. They're identical in every way that could be relevant at work. The only difference between them is one of these employees is a woman and the other of these employees is a man. And what the court said, if the employer fires the man for being attracted to men, but retains the woman who's attracted to men, he's necessarily taking sex into account and making that employment decision. Sex is a but-for cause of the termination, and that violates Title VII. And then the same holds true for transgender people. So imagine a company with two identical women, one is cisgender, one is transgender. If the employer fires the trans woman who was assigned male at birth, but retains the cisgender woman, the company is penalizing the transgender woman for traits or actions that would be tolerated in the cisgender twin. So simple, sex discrimination. I think the question becomes, if you take that a step further, how do you think the courts are going to treat bisexual? Because if the theory is it has to be because of sex, and you're saying that, well, we're going to terminate any employee who's attracted to both sexes, whether that person is a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. If you're attracted to both sexes, we don't want you working here. Do you think that would, because I, from what I understand, it seems like that's was an area that the court didn't address and didn't discuss. Yeah, um, so the... still kind of an open question. So the plaintiffs in the Bostock cases, which was actually three cases, were two gay men and a transgender woman. And bisexual people were certainly not explicitly in the opinion, but I think that the reasoning of Bostock and other cases saying that Title VII protects LGBTQ people would apply with just as much force to bisexual okay. people. So okay. I think the illustration that the court used was tied to the facts before the court, which was a transgender mm -hmm. woman and two gay men. But if you fire someone for being bisexual, you're taking into account the sex that yeah. they are. So is this person a man, a woman, someone non-binary, and the sex of the person they're attracted to? And that, just like firing a gay man or a transgender woman, unavoidably is a sex-based decision. Okay. Um, so I think that would... Be treated the same way. I think that would be treated the same way. And then the other way of thinking about it is how these things play out. There may mm -hmm. also be other evidence that an employee could draw on. Okay. Yeah, and one thing I would add, Jeff, is for the listeners out there, is if you want to read kind of a, a really... I think good analysis to kind of touches upon what you mentioned is I'd invite people to read the Zarda decision, which was authored by Chief Judge Katzman. As Ezra had mentioned that the Bostock decision was actually three decisions. One was Zarda and Zarda was the gay man, if I'm not mistaken, and 
Judge Katzman really goes through a very, very thorough kind of analysis with a lot of different hypotheticals and kind of states different theories as to why the court should take a particular approach. Now, of course, that was the Second Circuit case. It was the predecessor mm-hmm. before it percolated up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in that case, I mean, Judge Katzman goes through a very kind of robust analysis to support why that court believed that why sex is covered under Title VII with respect to... Was it the to, same, same sort of analysis as Gorsuch or no? I don't think it was. I think it was different, although it came to the same okay. conclusion. I mean, Justice Chief Justice, okay. excuse me, uh, Justice Gorsuch is, was a very textualist approach, which, you know, of course, we mm-hmm. can discuss, whereas I don't think I would say Judge Katzman's wasn't. But I, I think that it's certainly worth reading. It's a good read if you want to take a chance to kind of look through it. It's very thorough and it's very long, <laughs> too, as a matter of fact. Ezra, yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you was in terms of, I guess, this textual approach, and for those listening who don't know what a textualist approach is or who haven't heard of textualism, in brief, textualism is, is in essence a method of statutory interpretation whereby the plain words or the text of a statute is used to determine the, the meaning of the legislation and not so much as the legislative intent or perhaps the overall statutory scheme. That's something that most conservative judges, I think, adhere to. It's certainly the late Justice Scalia, he adhered to that, and certainly Justice Gorsuch is indeed a conservative as well, no doubt. But given that you have this textualist approach in Bostock, and you have seen a number of conservative judges that have been appointed to the the federal bench, certainly during the Trump administration, I mean, that's something that he certainly champions a lot on television. How do you feel as though this textual approach to Title VII, how do you feel as though that's going to have an impact on transgender rights and how Title VII impacts transgender rights, or at least how it's read going forward? I think that Gorsuch's analysis and the textualist approach offers, as you sort of alluded to, Casey, an avenue to acknowledging protections for LGBTQ people that is understood to be consistent with a more conservative viewpoint. And it's not entirely a surprise, right? So in the early days of Title VII, there were some bad decisions, and then there were some, and there were no good court of appeals decisions, but there were actually some good trial court decisions back when the statute was relatively new saying, okay, firing someone because an employer thought that upon hire that this person was a man, but now understands that they are a woman or because the courts would use different language at the time because they've changed sex and become a woman is sex discrimination. However, we understand it. It didn't take sort of the bells and whistles of sex stereotyping or other modes of interpretation to arrive at that conclusion necessarily. So I think that it's appealing and that it's fruitful. And now that we have a Supreme Court decision relying on textualism to reach this result, you know, I'm hopeful that we will continue to get decisions that protect the rights of LGBTQ employees. Sure. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's going to be very interesting to see because with sort of that textualist approach to transgender issues is that I think that there is going to be more of an emphasis to focus on transgender women as women and transgender men as men without the sort of the underlying analysis that goes into maybe a, a deeper look at, well, what does that mean or how are we defining sex? If you kind of get beyond that and you take the textual approach adopted by Justice Gorsuch, then it seems at least to me suggest that there is going to be an advancement of transgender rights. And it's going to be very interesting to see how the Bostock decision is interpreted and how it's sort of applied in other areas of employment law uh, by district judges. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that we're already beginning to see that. The Bostock decision said we're not saying anything more than deciding about hiring and firing, but already courts of appeals that have confronted 
questions of discrimination against LGBTQ people at work and in schools and other places have looked to the reasoning of Bostock and applied it in different scenarios, right? So for example, this fall, there was a decision in favor of a woman in Georgia who sought healthcare because she's transgender and her employer's health plan had a categorical exclusion of transgender care. So any care that she might need as part of her gender transition or to affirm that she's a transgender woman was categorically excluded based on the language of the plan. And she brought a Title VII claim and the employer raised various arguments, but the district judge easily looked to Bostock and said, no, wait, this is sex discrimination and allowed her Title VII claims to go forward. And then even before that, under Title IX, the federal statute prohibits sex discrimination in education. Two transgender boys had brought suit under Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause because in their schools, they were not allowed to use the boys' room, which is a huge problem, right? It's If you think about how long we're all in work and school every day, if you're not allowed to use the restroom, <laughs> that is a harm in of itself and it impedes access to school and is deeply, deeply stigmatizing. And so these students brought suit under Title IX. One was in Virginia, one was in Florida. The cases were making their way through the courts actually long before Bostock was heard, but we got a Fourth Circuit decision and an 11th Circuit decision close on the heels of Bostock saying Title IX prohibits this type of discrimination and relying on the Bostock decision and also relying on equal protection analysis. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how long it takes before those or that issue gets up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I was quite, I guess, surprised, if you will, the number of times that the issue about transgender rights and, and restrooms came up during the oral arguments in Bostock. I mean, it was something that was brought up by Justice Sotomayor. It was something that was brought up by, I believe it was Justice Breyer, perhaps Justice Kagan, I don't really remember, where they kind of expressed hesitation and what is going to be a bridge too far, so to speak. And interestingly enough, it had, you know, the decision had absolutely nothing to do with that. And, and their hesitations, of course, were absent from, I guess, the overall analysis undertaken by the majority, which, of course, was authored by Justice Gorsuch. He explicitly said he's not going to address mm -hmm. those issues. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it's only a matter of time before those cases make their way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And certainly it's going to be very interesting to see what the, the court does now. Once those make it up there, uh, you know, we have a 6-3 conservative majority, but given Bostock, it seems as though they've perhaps somewhat signaled. We'll just have to see how, how it goes. Yes, we will see. You know, reflecting on oral arguments, there, the issues of single-sex facilities, it also struck me how quickly that came up when it really was not an issue that was before the court at all with these cases. I think that in the Bostock analysis and then like the lived reality that in New York and around the country, transgender people are existing in public spaces and have been for a long time without problem. And that has increasingly been acknowledged. Those are things that give me hope. Ezra, one thing that was present in the Bostock decision was this idea of intersectionality and wanted to kind of touch upon that briefly. In terms of intersectionality, what is intersectionality and how do you think it's going to apply to LGBTQ employment matters being brought going forward? Intersectionality is a, a term that I believe was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw talking about the discrimination experienced by Black women. And I will do my best to do her brilliance justice, but in essence, we as people are whole and three-dimensional people and we have multifaceted identities, right? So somebody who is a white transgender man has a race and a gender identity and a sexual orientation too and a nationality and a religion and everything else. Or somebody who's a black transgender woman has the same sort of whole three-dimensional identity. And then as a result of that, and as a result of people's biases, people confront 
discrimination that's based on many facets of who they are at once. And it's not possible to say that was because an employee is a woman isolated from being black or something else. So intersectionality is the acknowledgement that a black trans woman, for example, may face racism and transphobia together. And that may be a unique kind of discrimination that her colleague who is a white woman or a black cisgender woman may not face. And I think that Bostock, you know, there's a lot of focus on the groundbreaking nature of a Supreme Court decision that acknowledges the rights of LGBTQ people. And I don't want to understate that. I think the decision was also really groundbreaking for its treatment of causation in a way that can be helpful and has already been helpful to people who face compound or intersectional discrimination. So the court really clarified that when you're talking about discrimination because of sex, sex may be one of many factors motivating discrimination. And as long as you can show that sex is a but-for cause, Title VII is triggered. It doesn't matter if there are a bunch of other but-for causes in the mix, right? So the court used the example of an employer who fires a woman for being a Yankees fan. And of course, Title VII doesn't protect Yankees fans. But the court said that doesn't matter. If someone is fired for being both a woman and a Yankees fan, (laughs) then you have a Title VII problem. And that was all dicta, but I think that was really important. And then the other thing, the other sort of important things about causation, I think that bear on intersectional claims that Title VII said is employers can't really insulate themselves by pointing to equitable treatment at a group level. So an employer can't say, I treat women as a class really well, so go away, woman who's been fired or harassed or whatever else. And that's that wasn't necessarily new. We already understand from sexual harassment law that an employer can't defend against a claim by saying, but look, I have so many women in the workplace. The question is, did an employer allow harassment of the individual plaintiff? But I think having it spelled out in Bostock was really helpful. And then the other thing that the court did was they dispensed the argument of the employers that was, well, look, discrimination based on sexual orientation affects both gay men and lesbians. So no sex discrimination here. I guess it was some like weird algebra thing, right? Where it's like, if you have men and you have women who could be affected by this type of discrimination, they somehow cancel out. And the court said, no, that's that's not the case. That just means that sex discrimination can happen to people of all sexes. And an employer who discriminates against both gay men and lesbian women would be doubling his Title VII liability, not getting rid of it. Otherwise, people can just say that I sexually harass men and women. Exactly. So I'm not discriminating against you know either gender. And I totally remember that discussion from my employment law class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, exactly. Does the equal opportunity harasser get off? Right. And so the answer is no, right? No. And so these interpretive principles that were affirmed really clearly in this opinion, I think will be really important for folks who face discrimination that is based on a combination of factors, in some cases, both covered by Title VII, so something like a race and a national origin claim, or a a race and a sex claim, or multiple factors, one of which might not be covered by Title VII. So Casey, you raised when we were talking about this podcast, the Affinity Gaming Blackhawk decision. And I think that that was a really great example that came maybe a month after Bostock was decided, where some older women who had been fired by a casino said, look, we were discriminated against because of our sex and our age, and they brought disparate treatment and disparate impact claims. And the trial court said, well, wait a sec, you can't bring a sex plus age claim under Title VII. And the Tenth Circuit on appeal was like, wait a sec, no, of course you can. See Bostock. Also see a bunch of other really much older Supreme Court cases that had said, for example, discriminating against women with young children is sex discrimination, even though Title VII doesn't cover like parental status, standing alone. And I think that that opinion was really 
you know, it drew on Bostock and then it also said acknowledging intersectional discrimination and the fact that Title VII prohibits intersectional discrimination is is also part of its prohibition of discrimination against on the basis of sex stereotypes. So that because was it's very, still a reason, even though it's not the only reason. Yeah, so it's a reason, and it's a reason that's rooted in these deep societal ideas about older women. And certainly, one can imagine that in a in a service industry job, those stereotypes might really loom large and, and be to the detriment of female employees. So Ezra, I want to ask you a question about, you know, something on a much more broader level from the perspective for the listeners to understand the thought process that has gone into the analysis in coming up with the decision in terms of Bostock and and kind of looking into the experiences that people experience within the workplace and all over the country as a part of how they identify based upon their gender, how the gender stereotypes influence how they experience that type of prejudice and how they're treated as a result of how they're expected to be, that expectation that certain people must behave in accordance with certain defined ideals and values and things that are somewhat nurtured in the institutions of our educational institutions. Like From that perspective, I just want to like give the listeners an opportunity to hear your thoughts on ultimately the real fight that we're really trying to fight against in terms of fighting for this sense of equality. And when you talk about intersectionality, it's like the uniqueness of every individual to have the ability to express and be themselves without being treated differently and harassed and discriminated against. So what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a really good point, Meyer, that what we're fighting for, right, is that people should be able to be themselves and do their jobs. And it doesn't matter that we're all different and diverse. That's all like part of the beauty of humanity, right? That It's like great yeah. that everybody's different and that their expression of gender and race and religion and everything else is not homogenous. And, you know, I think that I'm not sure that I have any, any deeper eloquent thoughts there, but I do think that seeing in my practice and in the case law that's played out, how the fight of LGBTQ people is really interrelated to the fight of cisgender and straight people for workplace equity is important and heartening. And I think that the Title VII decisions that came down this spring really built on on case law that came because cisgender women right. and men who were seen as too effeminate brought cases when they were denied promotions that Bryce Waterhouse or there was also a sex harassment case brought by a, a man who was harassed by other men at work. Um, and that allowed the court to get where it did for LGBTQ people. And then going forward, I think that the case law that unfolds will hopefully clarify the rights of LGBTQ workers and that that will continue to, to make a positive difference for everyone at work. It's certainly been my experience, and I know that other more experienced practitioners would likely say the same. It's not just lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people who face harassment that's homophobic and transphobic. It's people who in the mind of the harasser are too effeminate or too butch or right. not manly enough, which I guess is another way of saying too effeminate. And the work for gender equity at work is really interrelated. And I think it's important to point out that everything that we're talking about and this bar against discrimination against the LGBTQ community doesn't only apply to, you know, adverse actions and terminations, but it also applies to harassment and a hostile work environment within the workplace while you're working and in the absence of any adverse employment action. So I just want to make that clear. It's important that people know that. Yeah. And I think, thank you for, thank you for bringing that into the conversation, yeah, Jeff, you know, 
when I was practicing in a legal services setting, many of the employment discrimination cases I worked on were gender-based harassment cases. Mm -hmm. So folks who experienced what I think would be understood as sexual harassment, but also homophobic comments or transphobic comments and jokes or being prevented from using a locker room because of being transgender and also being harassed. And Title VII prohibits that type of harassment when it's severe or pervasive and creates a hostile work environment. And then the New York City and state human rights laws also protect against discrimination and harassment. And they actually capture more harassment. So under the city mm-hmm. human rights law, any harassment that's more than trivial is prohibited. And it's on the employer if, a, if an employee experiences harassment and can state a claim. It's on the employer to say, wait, this is trivial. That's an, an affirmative defense that the employer would have to prove. So the state and city law, I think, when it comes to workplace harassment, continue to be very important tools for that reason, right? They reach more conduct and then also because they reach smaller workplaces. Right now, under state law, they've reduced it to one employee, Mm -hmm. so there's no longer a minimum employee requirement. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And the city law for gender-based harassment is also a one-employee threshold. I think that a lot of harassment of people for being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender is properly understood as as gender-based harassment and could be addressed under the city law in a very small workplace as well. Mm -hmm. So Ezra, just kind of provide us a little bit for the listener in terms of the common patterns that are experienced within the workplace. I know we can't cover all of them, but certainly, I guess, what are the common patterns that you have seen in terms of workplace discrimination from the perspective of sex? Yeah. So for sex discrimination and LGBTQ people in particular, sexual harassment, certainly a huge problem, like I said, and then also folks facing misgendering. So Mm-hmm. What that is, is when someone is intentionally calling someone by the wrong name or the wrong gendered title. So, for example, referring to a woman as sir or refusing to use her, her name. And mm-hmm. that's something that I think we have no trouble understanding as harassment if it's something that's perpetuated against a cisgender woman. And it's also something, unfortunately, that trans people experience all the time. So I had a client who was a longtime employee. She was a woman who was transgender. Her former name was very culturally male. And it was in her employee file because she had been at this company for a pretty long time. She used her name, her real name, which was culturally female at work with no issue, but this name was kicking around in the file. And a new person came on board and he made some advances. She rebuffed him, forgot about it. And then her job was that she was an accessoride driver and she needed to get a physical to maintain her CDL. And the time came for her to do that. She needed some paperwork from her employer to do it. And the harasser was the person who was in charge of issuing the paperwork. And he refused to issue it in her name. He issued it in her former name, which wasn't her legal name, wasn't on her CDL. There was no way she could use this paperwork to get the physical she needed. And as a result, she went and she said, hey, wait, that's not my name. Please fix this. He said no. He really dug in and she was not able to get the physical for a time. Her credential lapsed. And that had then sort of a chain reaction of consequences for her ability to continue doing her job. Fortunately, the case was resolved in her favor, but after a, a lot more, <laughs> a lot more litigation than one would hope. Was that litigated under Title Seven? It was or... under Title Seven, and oh, actually, wow. 
I handled the case at the EEOC stage and then changed jobs, but okay. it actually there's a motion to dismiss decision. The employer conceded oh, wow. that trans people okay. were covered, but argued that this was not discrimination and lost in a motion to dismiss. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. And so then other types of discrimination that, that I've seen and that continue to play out for LGBTQ workers, discrimination and benefits, unfortunately, continues mm-hmm. to be a problem. So when marriage equality was new, employers digging in and refusing to cover spouses of the same gender on equal terms. And then the persistent problem of health plans just refusing to cover transgender care or refusing to cover categories of health care for folks who are transgender. So if you think about it, health plans will cover care like hormones or hysterectomies or other reconstructive surgery that employees might need. But many plans, unfortunately, will still have categorical exclusions saying we won't cover this if it's for a sex change or pick your other sort of outdated terminology. And that's really you don't need a lot of you don't need a lot of analysis to get at that being sex discrimination, right? It's a a facially sex based limitation. The employee is doing equal work and their compensation is categorically excluding medically necessary health care. So federal courts have really consistently found that transgender exclusions in employee health plans violate Title VII or Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, or in mm-hmm. some cases for government employees, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. So Ezra, how would you, in terms of what you've described as obviously these two very common patterns that can occur within the LGBTQ community, how would you advise someone that is experiencing discrimination within the workplace and how to kind of tackle these issues with their employer or outside of their employer? Mm -hmm. I think that the same sort of core things that I've heard you all surface on other episodes of the podcast continue are also important for LGBTQ employees, right? Mm -hmm. Keep track of what's happening, make sure it's reported. And then I think that LGBTQ employees maybe face additional barriers and in some instances because they may need to do some education, right? For the employer to understand that what's going on is unlawful discrimination. And so there are certainly resources that folks can bring to the table when they're reporting discrimination or just to have in their own sort of toolkit for understanding Mm -hmm. their rights and their employer's obligation. The New York City Commission on Human Rights, which is the agency that enforces New York City's anti-discrimination law, has a legal interpretive guidance about gender discrimination that's really geared to discrimination based on gender identity or expression and covers how the human rights law applies to discrimination against transgender people at work and then the other areas of jurisdiction covered by the law, so housing, public accommodations. And that can be a good tool for folks just for sort of understanding education, self-advocacy, and the commission has other guidances on other topics that, that may also, also be useful for folks. And then organizations like Lambda Legal or the ACLU have similar sort of know your rights toolkits that folks can use for understanding and advocacy. Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund has a really great toolkit for issues around health insurance coverage for trans employees. And then getting counsel, right? Talking to an employment lawyer who's knowledgeable on these issues, who can give specific advice and help someone sort through what laws might apply, what might be the best way to report discrimination, what might be a good outcome is also really important. Yeah. And one thing I'll add is to say to, I guess, listeners out there, if they feel as though they've hit a dead end or if they feel as though their legal rights are not being adequately protected, I mean, I would say keep fighting. 
I mean, keep working and keep doing what you have to do to gain equal rights and to gain justice. We had mentioned the Bostock decision. I mean, one thing that is exemplified, at least for me, with respect to that decision was uh, Don Zarda and furthermore, the estate of Don Zarda. I mean, that was a case that began in 2010. That was when Don Zarda was fired because he had disclosed to a customer that he was gay. And then he filed an EEOC charge that same year. Now, that case eventually went to court. He had passed away during that case's litigation, but his estate picked it up and they didn't give up, right? They continued that case and the defense made a motion for summary judgment uh, on the basis that they said that Title VII doesn't cover sex-based discrimination insofar as it relates to sexual orientation. The court agreed. It allowed his, I think it was his state or local law claims to go forward. The estate continued on and went to trial. Now, he lost the trial. They used his deposition testimony as part of his quote-unquote proof. And then after that trial concluded, they then appealed to the Second Circuit. They lost at the Second Circuit and then sought what you call an en banc review. And that was when they prevailed. And I mean, you talk about the insurmountable odds of trying to, number one, get the court to even hear an en banc review. And then number two is to, in essence, reverse itself and to say, yes, we're going to go a different direction. We were incorrect in the past, and here it is. And then have that go to the U.S. Supreme Court, have the U.S. Supreme Court take it up, and then and Don's order prevail. So uh, that was a 10-year battle for Don and his estate. And at the, in 2010, I can't imagine that he ever would believe that in 10 years that his case would be making landmark Supreme Court precedent. But I think just to show you is that he didn't give up. He was on the right side of history. And, and he and his estate, the hardworking attorneys that represented him, fought hard for what they believe was right. Yeah, absolutely. The Donald Zarda tragically didn't live to see his win, like you said. And then also Amy Stevens, the, yeah. um, the funeral director in the Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC case, also tragically passed away, I, I think, less than a month before the case came mm-hmm. down. But their courage and their dedication and standing up for what was right really is going to leave such an important legacy for the rest of us going forward. Yeah. And I think it's so important. I mean, Casey, you, you definitely mentioned it about how many doors were closed, how many courts did not want to see their side of the facts and the way that the law would protect them and help them, and how many times it takes for someone that believes in something to make a difference, not only for themselves, but for so many others. It's certainly remarkable. And it tells you that there's so many hurdles and obstacles that are created that takes a lot of courage, a lot of consistency, persistence to really fight for what you believe in. So yeah, I think that's a uh, and you what's know, right. Yeah, and what's right, absolutely. So I want to thank you, Ezra, so much for taking out the time to do this with us. I think this has been a very informative podcast that I think the listeners will certainly gain the advantage of learning from in terms of learning about Bostock, intersectionality, and all the other areas that we covered in terms of LGBTQ rights. And I just wanted to thank you from our whole team here today for taking out the time to do this. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, Mayor and Jeff and Casey. It was really great to talk with y'all. Thank you very much, Ezra. Very much appreciated. For all the listeners, thank you so much for listening in, and I look forward to making another episode and welcome you on board. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today.
visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.